0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet.
1: Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Ends and I'm Jared Bias. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. There's a topic today that I'm I'm excited about. It's called The Bible as a Living Document, and it's it's a, something I've been wanting to talk about for a little while, and we're talking with Jennifer Knust, who's currently at uh, Duke University, and I appreciated her expertise to talk about textual, transmission, reception, all of that, we get into some good stuff. Um, but for those normal people, we'll just say the Bible as a living document.
0: Yeah, the, the Bible just keeps developing and moving. And, and one of the points she makes, I think it's just a great point, is that you know every Bible has sort of a story behind it. And even what things are included and what things are not included, or how some things in the Bible are presented and not presented the same way in other Bibles. And I don't want to go into detail because she, you know, she Jennifer talks about this stuff, but it's, it's. I just find it really interesting that you just open up in, in your house, if you have a number of Bibles, just open up different translations and just even look at like little subheadings that invade the chapters and what they're called. That's part of your Bible. No, that's not the original, but that's still part of the Bible that you're given. And that is a, those are guides to understanding the text, which means part of this is already being interpreted for you before you even sit down and read it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say is, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast interpretation, and then we can contrast that with the physical books that you hold in your hand and how they're formatted and how we put headers and chapters and verses, but this blurs those things where right. headers and chapters and verses are interpretations in right. themselves. Yeah. Anytime you translate,
0: you're actually interpreting a text. Anytime you lay it out and decide, do I indent something here because old manuscripts of the New Testament Greek, they don't have indentations. Sometimes they don't even have spaces in between words. So you've got to really think what is being said here and sometimes you've got more than one choice. So mm-hmm. you're you're interpreting even the Bible that we're given is is an act of interpretation. It's, a, it's an act of transmitting a tradition, and there are multiple traditions of Bible in the Christian world. And I, I, I find that fascinating, and, you know, maybe not everybody does. Maybe even it's a little bit unsettling for some. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's probably my favorite part of this episode was how optimistic and passionate Jennifer was about how this is a good thing. She loves this stuff. She's such a nerd. Yeah. Isn't she, though? That's what we love. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into this conversation with Jennifer.
2: You know, any reading of the Bible that leads to a squashing of love and care and compassion and relationship is a bad reading of the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself has to be the first criterion. You know, nothing else can matter more than that. The Bible can be used in ways that are not on the side of love and... If that's happening, then I can't see the Holy Spirit in whatever the reading is, whatever the interpretation is.
3: Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code normal
1: people. Well, welcome, Jennifer, to the podcast. It's great to have you on.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be in this conversation with you.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, before we get started, we would like to hear just a little about you and what drove you. What madness, what circumstance, what trauma would lead you, to, what be, did you lose? to be
0: a biblical scholar? Tell us about your relationship with your parents.
1: What
2: happened? <laughs> exactly. Jennifer. That is exactly the story I should tell. Okay.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Just give me a little background. Religious. We religious, don't do therapy, uh, though,
0: just so you know. All right?
1: No, okay, okay. Well, we do, enough. but it costs a lot more. <laughs> So, a little religious, just kind of a a spiritual bio, and then what drove you to to study the Bible for a living?
2: Well, I was raised in a really wonderful, loving Christian family, and my mother is an amateur biblical scholar who I think, had she had a different life, could have been a professor of New Testament easily. And she raised me to ask really interesting curious hard questions about the bible that because that's what she did she used to sit me down before school and read Bible stories with me, and she always let me ask whatever questions I wanted. So I can remember vividly, you know, asking her about why Abraham would sacrifice Isaac, for example, because I was really unhappy as a seven-year-old that that story was in the Bible, right? And she she had been reading all of the latest scholarships, so she gave me a story about, well, it's, it's really an anti-child sacrifice story, you know? So she was a scholar in her own right, um, an amateur, but an excellent one, I think, and she still is. Um, And then also raised in church, you know, went to church every Sunday. I'm American Baptist. I sang in the choir. I went to youth group. I sang Silent Night on Christmas Eve solo. I had a very brief moment. That was my 15 minutes of fame. Um, So I always felt very um, close to the church, close to the Bible, very much part of my upbringing, but then also had a bunch of questions. I think I'm a questioning, curious type who is unsatisfied with pat answers and somehow found my way into biblical scholarship, I think, through that, really, um, that wrestling with my upbringing, with what I had learned in church, and this book that I had memorized all the stories, and I I loved it, but I had a lot of questions, and I'm so lucky that I got to turn that into my life, my career.
0: And I think just your upbringing, I know a lot of our listeners are probably really envious of that, you know, in, in a respectful sense, because I think that for some, the trauma at home you know not intentional right. parents love their kids but you know they're taught not to question and and not to have that freedom that spiritual freedom to question the bible and that that comes home to roost so that, right. i think that's really uh, both encouraging and depressing what you mean, <laughs> just uh, depending on who's listening but yeah
2: well it is i think that is a unique and lucky thing that i had
0: so okay so why um new Te- why new testament
2: well, I mean i'm I'm a Baptist, and so if I really wanted to know what God thought, of course, I had to know what Jesus thought and what Paul thought, and that was the most important mm. thing to try to figure out. And you know, part of the reason I was wrestling and questioning is because even though my mom was extremely open and remains extremely open around questions around the Bible, I mean, I also had a strict Christian upbringing I had to get over. <laughs> so
3: let's be let okay. let me be
2: a little honest, you know yeah. there were
0: things well, in what sense? Too. in what sense?
2: Oh, um, you know, I was very much taught to be a good girl at all times, yeah. and I frankly wasn't always, you know, <laughs> and um, yeah. I had to figure that out.
1: So there was a, maybe a moralistic tone to how how um, you enacted or embodied the things you were learning from the Bible. Yeah. Oh,
2: definitely. In fact, I've just been going through some of my old journals because I'm cleaning out my parents' barn, and I found some of the journals I had written in my night, you know, my teens and twenties, and they made me cringe at how anxious yeah. I was that I wasn't going to be perfect enough to live up to God. And I don't have that theology anymore, but boy, I did. And it was really hard sometimes. Okay.
0: Why don't you have that theology anymore? How did, how did you sort of cross that bridge to another way of living?
2: Well, I think through my scholarship and my and life yeah. experience together, mm-hmm. right? Um so I think that's one of the reasons I'm a professor is because I, I work out what I'm trying to understand through thinking and writing. And I'm sure other people have other much healthier ways, but that works for me. And um, Oh,
0: no, that's me too. I, my <laughs> books are basically journaling. People don't know that. It's just like me just, yeah, I got to work some stuff out. I'll write a book about it. Exactly. Anyway. But, Thank
2: you. Every book, yeah. I mean, is secretly about me. You know?
0: Yeah, so, I'm going to dedicate yeah. the next one to me. <laughs>
2: Well, they are dedicated to me so and to you, right? I mean, that's the thing that maybe writers don't always admit, that it's actually we're trying to figure out our own stuff.
1: So, uh, just to to take a turn a little bit to talking about the idea of some of the work you've done, which is around textual transmission and reception. Yeah. And that's a mouthful. And what we like to do is take these concepts and break them down for everyday people. So, maybe just define what that what that means and and why that's interesting to you?
2: Well, so, you know, earlier in my career, I never really thought much about Bibles and how they came to be. You know, I just read them, right? And I interpreted them. I mean, as I became more advanced in my scholarship, I could read Greek, I could read Hebrew, I could talk about the historical background, but I still never questioned the critical edition of the Greek New Testament, for example, that all the scholars use or, The New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is what scholars tend to use in many contexts, you know, I didn't really ask how those came to be. And I guess in the process of my career, all of a sudden, I just started asking, wait a minute. And I started to notice something that I now feel so strongly about, which is that every Bible tells a story. Every Bible is, in fact, a kind of material object that contains the tradition that informs it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about, like, I have a my great-grandma's Danish psalter and prayer book that my mom gave me. I have it in my office. And it tells the story, in a way, of my great-grandma's journey from Denmark, what was precious to her, why that was precious to her, how brave it was for her to come to the United States at 18. You know, all it, it somehow— an object that carries my great-grandmother, even as it's a psalter, Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah? And so I just got interested in that, and I remained fascinated by it and have had the great privilege as a scholar of actually seeing so many Bibles, New Testaments, copies of psalters, copies of gospel books that are very old, and it just strikes me how different they are from you know, the new revised standard version that I have at my desk or the nestle Aland critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which I use when I'm reading for the purposes of interpretation for my work. I I just like it. It's just different. It's just interesting and weird. (laughs) So for example, I just wrote this really long book about the transmission of the story of the woman taken in adultery, which became a, a way to think about the problem of how Bibles change. So like, if, if, if you have a King James Version, the story of the woman taken in adultery is in it, no problem. But if you have a New Revised Standard Version and you're paying attention, you might see that it has brackets around it. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, there's a really long story that I could, you know, probably bore your listeners at nauseam because I could talk about that. Like, but it, it becomes a way of thinking about how Bibles really do change and how the people who touch Bibles Make changes, and for reasons that are very important to them, that somehow get lost along the way if we don't pay right. attention.
0: Well, tell us what the brackets mean in the new revised standard version. The brackets around that, so the beginning and end of that story have brackets. What does that mean?
2: It means that from the perspective of the translators and then the editors, the story was not in the earliest copies or the original. Is the traditional way of talking about it, the original Gospel of John. So it was John, the the writer of the Gospel of John didn't write that story. It got imported in later on. And no Protestants bothered to notice that problem until the 18th century. Hmm. So that has to do with the way that Protestants received really the Latin Bible and ultimately the Greek Bible from a Catholic tradition that had accepted the story of the woman taken in adultery as being part of the Gospel of John probably since the 4th century, if not earlier. So why would you question whether the original author wrote it or not? You wouldn't until the 18th century and the dawn of of modern science and modern scientific methods and the discovery of new manuscripts. And then all of a sudden, the story got called into question. And what happened in, in a certain strain of Protestantism is that we cared more about the original and reclaiming the original than we did in claiming the tradition as we had received it from, you know, the fourth century through the Catholic tradition.
1: So, so how, how do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that would throw our listeners a little bit for a loop of, there was a decision to privilege the quote-unquote original, um, and or, or do we privilege the tradition of what was received, and how... I just for me growing up I would well of course you do the original cuz the original is the most important thing and it sounds like maybe there's a step in between that that uh, I would have been missing as a as a kid that there's a decision to be made and it's not actually black and white or easy to make that decision.
2: Well, I think that's right and I I think that Protestants also have a tradition and that tradition is that we should assume the importance of the original over and against church tradition. That's our tradition. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, we, we always have a tradition. Exactly. Good, good. Yeah. So, so, how do you make that? Um, yeah, I mean, just maybe you can just go a little bit more with how you think about that in the work that you do in terms of how you adjudicate some of these issues.
2: Yeah, I think for me, realizing that the New Testament and the Bible as a whole always comes out of a tradition has actually opened up a whole world of really delightful questions for me about, well, what is the tradition and why do some people read this this book in this way and other people read it that way? And how is it that, for example, a New Revised Standard Version translation teaches me that the Bible should be read? So, for example, just a a small little funny thing but actually makes a huge difference is the chapters and verses in the Bible. Where do they come from? Do you know? (laughs) We don't read Mm -hmm. the same chapters and verses that were read, for example, by a fifth-century Christian in Constantinople. Our chapters and verses come out—first, the chapters come out of the Vulgate, and the verses come out of the 16th century. So, they're not actually part of the original text, but they kind of matter. You know, if we're going to go around and say, John 3, 16, and we all know what that is, who knows what that is? Well, Mm -hmm. if we were reading, you know, the Bible in a different— tradition nobody would have any idea what we were talking about right the john three sixteen only works if you use the chapters and verse numbers that we have received from the catholic tradition and then the um well the paris university tradition and, and then the renaissance later on
0: so the verses are 16th century
2: that's true Hmm. Wow. that's right
0: and and the chapters are when did they come from Repeat yeah so the oh, so oh. the
2: chapters come the chapters are from the vulgate and i see now you're this is terrible for a historian. You think I would remember these things? I always have to look up my own data, right?
0: Yeah, well, I forget. Too much to I, th- on. Google
2: has really destroyed everyone's brain, right? Because we, just
0: say it's really old. It's really and old. That's fine, or just make something up. Nobody knows anyway, so that's <laughs> fine. So, yeah, but just it's interesting that they came at different times.
2: They came at different times, and yeah, the chapters yeah. came. Or the chapters were brought into the Paris Bible in the sort of. Scholarship of Catholics, and then the chapters were added in the beginning at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and part of as part of the printing of Bibles, and so the print of Bibles. Remember, we used to have handwritten Bibles, right? And now we have right. ones since Gutenberg. We have printed Bibles, and the the the, cha- the verses came in in that process.
0: Well, okay. So did the chapters and verses? You you're connecting this with the Reformation. Does that have to do with? making the Bible like the authority and accessible to people. Rather than keeping it in the hands of let's say church leaders or something, is that so they could find things more easily is is that it or or is this is something completely different?
2: Well, I think it was it was a project that scholars undertook, not something okay. that was really done for you know the common man, so to speak, but rather so that we would always know what we were talking about when we were talking about okay. stories right so so, for example, Byzantine Christians and now you know Greek Orthodox Christians had another system that goes back well to the 4th century, and then later to the 5th or 6th century, a system of chapters are called kephaliah, just means chapters, that are different than the chapters that we have. And so if they're going to talk about what, uh, you know, what part of the New Testament they're reading, they're going to talk about chapters that are different than our chapters, (laughs) right? Our being those of us who use contemporary English translations from, you know, the King James Version as well also has what become the modern chapters and verses.
1: Well, it seems like that's important because there are some interpretive decisions that were made as to when to cut off certain chapters. It it changes the climactic moment of certain chapters and verses. I don't know if you have any example. I I think of you know Genesis, when we think of the different, it always is f- interesting to me that when we talk about the two creation stories we talk about it smack there in the middle of chapter two like, right this there's this kind of break in the narrative, exactly. but there's you wouldn't know that by chapter and verses or Jonah or these other. do you have any examples of where? this kind of matters?
2: Sure. Um, in fact, I'm, so I'm the, one of the general editors of an update that's taking place for the new revised standard version right now. And I don't know what's going to happen because we're in the middle of doing the editing, right? So the book editors are, are talking to us about what they want to do. And, and then the general editors are coming in with the editorial board and, and discussing that, right? But we had a really interesting example recently where we were talking about the household codes in First Peter and whether the line wives be subject to their husbands. Oh, I take it back. It's not even 1 Peter. It's Ephesians. It's that one. It's in Ephesians when is the statement we should be subject is it part of what comes before or is it part of what comes after? Mm. And the scholarship nowadays says it it's about what comes before and then the wives part is a, is an, is another section, right? It's a it's a paragraph break, but people used to think that it was it was the first line of the wives be subject, and maybe it's not a big difference, but maybe it is because in Ephesians, for example. It doesn't actually say wives be subject. It says wives to husbands. Right. So the be subject part is actually being supplied in the translation because in English we need verbs. (laughs) Greek doesn't need verbs in the same way.
0: They they come in handy. Yeah. Exactly. You know,
2: we can't handle not having them. But I, you know, all your listeners should learn Greek. It's really beautiful. You don't need them in the same way. I mean, you do, but I know. I keep saying (laughs) that
0: they're not listening.
2: I can't believe I mean I know I mean I don't know what I'm sure people have busy lives and they don't have enough time but it does actually matter where the chapter break is and the and the verse break yeah. is and And j- and just
0: to back up for a second Jennifer yeah. the like the Greek manuscripts Yes. old Greek manuscripts that are not originals but you know we're getting we're getting close you know we're within a couple of centuries or something. Right. Um, they don't have a lot of breaks, do they? I mean, no, sometimes that's the right. words are just all connected and you have to figure out where words begin and end. Yes,
2: that's absolutely right. right. The, the older the manuscript, the more things are connected. <laughs> so, the less breaks And, and that's there why are, it's hard
0: yeah. to make some of the, you, you actually have to interpret it.
2: To, absolutely. To,
0: to make decisions about where to divide it. And is this a simple division? Like, is it a new sentence? That's right. Does this deserve a paragraph? And that's why our English Bibles, they're really, that's, that's one reason why they're so different.
2: Absolutely. That's exactly yeah. right. And then it's also the punctuation is all added much later and um, breathing marks in Greek, they don't have like a, an H sound. So they put something called a breathing mark. So, uh, and it makes a real difference whether there's a breathing mark or not. Stuff like this is super technical and I don't want to bore everybody. But, you know, there's a big difference between saying like the, an, or a, and which, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't necessarily tell which one you've got. Um, right. in a Greek manuscript necessarily. I mean, it depends on the context and so on. But definitely, all, every translation is always an interpretation. Every single one is. It's inevitable. And not only that, every Greek copy is its elf, a kind of interpretation.
0: Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code normal people at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with.
0: That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me.
1: So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash BNP. Well, say say more about that, because, you know, Pete just dropped a little bomb there of like, well, we don't have the originals. I mean, uh-huh. I think for those of us who went to seminary or graduate school, that would be obvious. But for uh, some of our listeners, that yeah. may not be obvious that we don't have the original. And, and Pete said not too long after a few centuries. Well, 200 years is... It's kind of a long time. The universe that's is thirteen point eight billion
0: years old, Jared. That's
1: pretty close. It's to all relative, years, I you know. know. Right, but but maybe say more about um, that, and sort of what do we have access to, and right. what don't we have access to?
2: That's right. So the earliest copies potentially are second century, although that's being debated. So that's fifty to hundred years after the books were written, and some of those have, the dates have been challenged. So now we're looking maybe third century, but we don't have we only have fragmentary copies from that period. The earliest copies we have are fourth century, right? So we're a good, what, you know, 300 years or 200 years plus, uh, at least out of the books being written. Every book, every copy was handwritten. We don't, we can't assume that the copyists had the same attitude toward texts that we do, right? So they might've not shared a print culture understanding of reproduction that you can just reproduce the same thing over and over and over because people had to make decisions about what they thought they were reading. And so there's a lot of small changes. Most of them are small, um, but there's bigger ones like the story of the woman taken in adultery, for example, all of a sudden enters the text in the fifth century. So around 400 is the earliest copy of a gospel of John that has that story in it, in terms of a material copy. There might've been earlier copies that had it, but in terms of what we actually have in our hand, 400 is the earliest copy of John with that. And the earlier manuscripts don't have it. Mm. So what do we do with that? That's just a a really good, obvious example. There's others like the endings of Mark are all different. There's at least three different endings of the Gospel of Mark. Depending which English translation you're reading, you may or may not be able to tell that. The King James has a different way of putting the the ending of Mark, for example, than the New Revised Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version or the New International Version. So for me, that's—instead of that being depressing, right? That could be depressing, right? If you think, oh, I have to have an original text or, Mm -hmm. you know, my faith is ruined. I think of it differently. I think of it like, how wonderful that there were all of these people over centuries who— loved these books and tried to copy them correctly as they understood what correctly meant. Yeah? Mm-hmm. David Parker has this really great book called um, The Living Texts of the Gospels, which talks about this, that Gospels, his book is about Gospels, are living texts. They are are lived out in community, they are copied in community, and they're changed materially by communities who use them. So mm-hmm. I would like, you know, among my uh, a Baptist friends, I would say, that's an opportunity to think about how many people have loved the Bible in different ways over time.
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Jarden from Marysville, Washington, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. So check out patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. One thing I love about being part of the Patreon group is the freshness and life and insights that Pete and Jared and their amazing guests bring to the Bible and how this amazing book has come to be, warts and all, a continuous gift from God. One group in particular we wish to thank is our producers group who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Thanks to Dan Dietz, Spiro Dye, Josh Vassar, Skip Sorel, John Thomas, Peter Hack, Peter John Evis, and Amy Orbrist. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. So now, back to the podcast.
0: Yeah, and just, I mean, to jump in from a, a slightly different angle, you know, in with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you know, the further, when, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. yes. It set us back almost a thousand years from the, the, the most recent completed manuscripts. That's right. Oh, good, we're going to get back close to the original. There is more diversity. Absolutely, you have different versions of Jeremiah, different versions of Isaiah, and yes. that tells us something about maybe how they valued. I am just presuming here. What do I know? I can't ask these people, but I always thought of that as a wonderful example of the a willingness to preserve different traditions. And oh, not to I try agree. to sort of narrow it down.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think we can see that in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament both, that whoever edited these books and and decided that they were a, a collection, you know, a library of books that held together in a canon, right? Which is, again, a really long story. It's not a short story. It's a very long yeah. story about how that came to be. They, they preserved a diversity of books that actually disagree with each other in obvious ways. <laughs> so so that to me, that's an opening to tradition and to communities of tradition to try to wrestle with what do we do with this diversity and what does that suggest about who we are and who God is in our tradition? It, it's a great point. I really like it, Pete. It's mm. also worth noticing You know how different the Bibles are, right? So like the Jews don't read the Protestant Bible— they read the Tanakh. Catholics mm-hmm. don't read the Protestant Bible. They have a Catholic Bible that includes what Protestants consider the Apocrypha because Martin Luther kicked out all of the books that didn't have a Hebrew original that were, that were yeah. in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. And even the New Testament writers, so for example, the writer of Jude cites the book of Enoch as prophecy. And there's no Bible that has yeah. the book of Enoch with the exception of the Ethiopians who still read Enoch as scripture. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's and awesome I always thing. I
0: always heard growing up like, well, he didn't really mean to quote him, you know. It was,
1: <laughs> it was like an accident. It was an or accident,
0: accident. <laughs> or it's like quoting C.S. Lewis or something. You know, so, but that's, yeah, exactly. But
2: how cool that is. I mean, that. but that's a great example. Like, absolutely, in the tradition I grew up in, people would quote C.S. Lewis as if they were that was scripture and wouldn't notice that they weren't weren't quoting the Bible. Like, that's
1: yeah, right. that's what communities do, <laughs>
2: well, you know. They, yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, I, I would you know, be curious of your thoughts on that because as we have these conversations with scholars about, hey, this is a living document. This this captures uh-huh. the the traditions and culture changes and and the perspectives change. And so we have this we have this body of knowledge or body of work that gets shaped through various traditions. I almost wonder is yes. like the closing of the canon and how scrupulous we are because we've become obsessed with quote unquote the original. Is that actually doing harm? To, is it kind of closing down this thing that for centuries has been this vibrant living thing?
2: Oh, I I think so. In fact, I hate the closing down move, right? I would, instead of just saying, well, the Bible says, as if that ends the conversation, why don't we say, like, well, my Bible, the Bible I know from my tradition says this and therefore this, right? Like, gee, I wonder if there's other ways of reading. It could be an opening to a conversation as opposed to a way of hitting someone over the head with, oh, the Bible says this and then. As if, as if that closes things down and we shouldn't have a conversation now because now we know what it says, as if we're not interpreting.
1: Yeah, like learning from our Jewish brothers and sisters where it's Rabbi so-and-so says and Rabbi so-and-so says and now we're going to say for a while.
2: I know, that tradition is wonderful. And in fact, it doesn't, it's it's present in the Christian tradition as well, particularly, I mean, I'm a historian, so you can find it at different moments in the Christian tradition, albeit differently, but at least we can begin by admitting that we have a tradition. <laughs> That would be a good first step.
0: Yeah, and that's a hard step for some people to take, I think, because of just how they were taught to think about the Bible.
1: Well, and taught to think about tradition. Yeah. Tradition was a, is a bad thing. Tradition's
0: bad. Bible good, tradition
1: bad. The whole work of biblical right. studies was to extricate yourself from tradition and get to just what the Bible is. According to your tradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can— not, Right. No, that's not how it works.
0: We don't have a tradition. We got the Bible straight. So, yeah, that's—I mean, no. the, thinking of the Bible as a living document, Jennifer, is— I mean, personally, I think it's very healthy. It's also unavoidable, perhaps. You know, if you just look at it historically. So, you know, we don't have, like you said, I, I was thinking of that bef- just before you said it. How, you know, I say the Bible, and I've got friends of mine who are Orthodox or Roman Catholic, and you know, I we don't we can't even agree on. You know, the Bible says, well, what is the Bible? You know, what what books are you going to appeal to?
2: Exactly. And Which Bible? You
0: know, that's it's really interesting how how divided Christians are and have been globally about that very question. That's that's almost, to me, it's like freeing, but I can see for some people it might be a little bit disorienting. It's like, and then you just have to say, well, those other people are all wrong, you know, <laughs> well, which is I mean, not the best I, place to be.
2: Again, I've been at different points in my life right now. I This is exciting and wonderful to me. I and I think part of it is I have to give thanks to my mother who never stopped me from being curious and asking questions. So that's thanks to her. But I certainly didn't think that there would be this much diversity in Bibles, you know, even early in my career or as a child, certainly as a as a young scholar, as a pastor. I was a pastor in Philadelphia for two years. Like this didn't occur to me until much later. And I guess I can, being a historian and knowing this information because I have the great privilege of going and looking at manuscripts and seeing it firsthand in the actual things, right? I can't deny it. So I I could give up and say, oh, well, I guess I'll go home and go to bed and like forget my faith, or I could say, Wow, this is so wonderful.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How can I think about this in a in a way that's curious and open and so that I could have a conversation with a, you know, a, a, a Greek Orthodox Christian about their Bible and why they read it the way they do and what they think about it and mm-hmm. and not assume that I because they have a different Bible, that we can't share some kind of common ground right, about Right love for scripture, why can't we share that even though we have different traditions?
0: right I guess these different traditions i mean I'm just putting pieces together as I hear you talking. Um, these different traditions are they're almost like archaeological artifacts that tell us something about what different people of faith embraced or thought was important at different. Periods of history. Does that make? Does that sound reasonable? Yes, that's exactly
2: right. And 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 I think in some ways, when I when I teach this to my students, I'll just have them bring in different Bibles, and instead of reading the Bible, I'll just have them look at the chapters, the tables of contents, the the kinds of introductory prefaces that are there, and and read that stuff. And once you start to notice that stuff, you notice how much. Whatever copy of the Bible you have is, in fact, an archaeological object that's, that's teaching you something about the very people who made it.
0: Yeah, right, right. And you can see that, I mean, with my students, I, I always, whenever we read something, I said, do your Bibles have subheadings? Right. And what does that subheading say? And that's sometimes very revealing, and you can sort of tell the bias. I mean, we all have biases, but you can tell the bias of, of that particular publication and what they're after, and that certainly affects how you read it. I mean, I, I, I don't want to like, get into specific examples, but for me, Romans is just rampant with that kind of stuff. You, If yes. you assume certain things about what righteousness means or justification means or justice means or flesh or spirit or faith, what those yes. things mean, I mean, the subheadings already tell you how to interpret this little passage of maybe 10, 15 verses you're about to read right? W- without realizing that In the minds of a lot of people, you've already put people down the wrong path here for even understanding what Paul is doing. And then then you add footnotes, right? Because a lot of study Bibles have notes explaining things. That's right. You know, it's almost like a Talmud. You know, it's like yes. you've got these notes all around it leading people on to sort of understand these things in a certain way.
2: That's right. I, I mean, it is like a Talmud in a way. I mean, if I've got my— I uh, find I mean, that
0: fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it is.
2: Right. So, if it was really so obvious yeah. what the Bible said, why do we have to put so many footnotes and chapter divisions and <laughs> tables of contents <laughs> and prefaces? It, you know, actually, the Bible is incredibly complicated, um, even if you're just reading it in English, right? So, right. people are always trying to control what it says. That's also a very old tradition. You can find it in all kinds of different manuscripts going back very far.
1: So, if, if there are people who you said, you know, there, you could take this as, you could be worried about this, oh, these diff- diversity in the different manuscripts and the diversity in the traditions that have edited how the Bible looks over, over centuries, or you could take this as a, a wonderful opportunity to see the diversity. What, you know, what steps might you take or give other people to take questions that you might have people ask or ways of thinking that might lead them in a direction to see this as something really good rather than something to be really concerned about.
2: Well, maybe, you know, one easy thing to do would just be to sit down with some friends or some people at church and have them bring their bibles in and just examine them and then ask what kind of story their bibles are telling and then maybe meet with someone outside of church, you know, maybe meet with a Jewish friend and look at their bibles and ask that question and have that be an opportunity to share What faith is to the person that you're talking to. And any opportunity to try to find some kind of common understanding and some kind of meeting ground where we can share what we love, even when it's different, seems to me a necessary human goal in in a divided world.
0: Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin-D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin-D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path.
0: You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential online, and hybrid.
1: You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at edu. Well, I, th- I mean, for some people, I mean, I agree with you. For some people, though, that very thing that you're describing would be like, um, I'm a heretic, you know, because, because you know, well— compare things and and you see how we're different and then and let's embrace that and celebrate it right for a lot of people that you know not not you know some of our listeners I'm sure not all of them but uh they come out of that background where that very thing is bad you know so right I'm just wondering I mean you know because your background is yours ours is ours and it may not be the same thing but I mean how if somebody comes to you and maybe maybe students that you teach come to you and ask you privately about how they're having a really hard time. They they get it. They they see the data, let's say. But they're just having a really hard time accepting spiritually this chaotic thing now called the Bible right. that used to be this wonderfully perfect thing that explained my reality. And, yeah, sure, it wasn't perfect. I'm not a fundamentalist, but. You know, I'm seeing that, you know, this this Bible is just like a constantly moving thing. It just doesn't sit still. And you know, how can you, how would you like help people think through that or work through that like emotional trauma?
2: Well, I guess I would want to ask how we or this person, you know, thinks that the Holy Spirit operates. Does it operate
4: Ooh.
2: through clarity, um, through just a set of of like dictation, you know, do this, do that, do this. I, I actually don't think that that's how the Holy Spirit moves. The Holy Spirit seems to move through people and nature and interaction and prayer. It And so wouldn't it work in that way in our encounter with Scripture as well? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sympathetic, but at the same time, I just— Want to say what? But, but that's the way it is. So what are you going to do? You know. So yeah. Why Why would you let that, that destroy your faith? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But but what I hear what I hear you saying. Too, I think that's a really really good point that you're making. Is that you start talking about God right away, and what do you think God is like? And yeah. Sometimes we wrap up how we read the Bible with what we think God is like, and those two things. Get tied up with one another, you know. When, yes. when you know, I have conservative friends. When they defend the Bible, yes. I think what they're really defending is a certain way of thinking about God. Yes, and those two things get get mixed up. And what I hear you saying, and I, I think this is very wise, is to separate those two questions because they're not the same thing.
2: I, d- I don't think they are. And I guess yeah. I would also say, and again, I mean, I'm American Baptist, so I would say this comes out of my own tradition that you know, any reading of the Bible that leads to a squashing of love and care and compassion and relationship is a bad reading of the Bible. I don't care what the Bible says. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself (laughs) has to be the the first criterion. You know, nothing else can matter more than that. And so often I hear when people want the Bible to be sort of fixed in time and place and be able to just be directly speaking without argument, that kind of shutting down can be used in ways that are not on the side of love. And if that's happening, then I, ca- I can't see the Holy Spirit in in however whatever the reading is, whatever the interpretation is.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's rampant though, I think, you know, um again, maybe especially in American culture. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but I think it is. You know, there's, I think people in in our culture, many Christians have been raised with that static view of their faith and the static view of the right. Bible that goes along with it. And I really like what you said about thinking you can just sort of like cite a verse mm-hmm. without engaging it on some level. You right. know, that proof texting mentality. But but again, you see, if if what you think of God is that, okay, God wants us to know everything about what God's about. Here's a book. Right. Just follow it, you'll be fine. You know, if that that actually tells us more about what kind of God they have than yes. And we all have problems. You know, none of us is perfect. You know, we all create God in our own image and all kind of stuff. But, you know, it tells us something about that. And I think maybe getting to that question of God and separating it from the Bible, that's, I don't know, I'm going to think about that more. With my students, who, who many of whom, you know, I, I teach at Eastern University, which is historically American Baptist, and yeah. you know, we have we have all <laughs> right. sorts of students right. there. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, and from,
2: my and the church I pastored was in Philadelphia, Falls of Schuylkill Baptist Church, so I wasn't so far away
1: from you.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that that tradition, I think, has historically been more open to these kinds of discussions?
1: I mean, I think it, just thinking back to just the, the textual transmission and reception. So, just kind of coming back to that and thinking through some of the, again, and maybe you already answered this, but if there's anything else just of a practical reader who's reading their Bible with these chapters and verses and yes. all these things that maybe they're just now, I would hope, you know, some people just don't ever think about that. Right. But through this, uh, listening to this podcast, like, oh, becoming aware that these are paraphernalia that have been added... To the text, what what's a good strategy? What's a good reading strategy for when you're picking up a Bible to to be able to integrate this into a new way of of thinking of of the Bible or Scripture or how to read it?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I see. I'm such a I'm a scholar, so I just I don't get asked these questions that much. That's a too, good question, Jared. Uh-huh. I should be it's able too, to answer it's that. It's too normal, peoplely.
0: Uh, yeah, Jennifer, I've tried that too. That doesn't work. <laughs> you're gonna have to answer it anyway.
2: Well, I, I guess I would say okay. I'm, I'm just thinking about like the you know a person with an English Bible who's not reading Greek, who's not reading Hebrew. Brew, what could they, what could they do? Well, well, one thing to do might just what
1: could they do that's valuable? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: So many things. Just stop actually. reading it. No, they should totally read it. They should totally read it. But you know, one thing to do would just be to just try to read it differently. You know, just just allow yourself to imagine that you know chapter seven and chapter eight actually don't have a division, how would that change what this passage means? Just be a al- little so
1: be, being more mindful of these distinctions come later. Absolutely. And not letting that get in the way of how you're reading or interpreting.
2: Well that's right. And you know, so when I was working on the adulterous woman story, I would get asked, well so should should we read it? You know, like if it's not in the Gospel of John. Mm. Um and I guess my answer to that would be why not read it? You know? You don't um, read it and and re- realize it's part of the tradition. And if that story speaks to you, it's in your tradition and you can, you know, find meaning in it. It doesn't have to have been written by, you know, the John, the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, assuming that's even who wrote the Gospel of John, which is a whole other question, right? Um, for it to have meaning because it's part of the broader effort of Christians over time to understand who Jesus is and therefore who God is in the world.
0: Yeah. And it strikes me that, you know, what we're seeing in that story of the adulterous woman, we're seeing the development of a tradition about who Jesus is. Yes, And and, and that's also called theology in the history of the church. That's almost like a mirror of what has happened, you know, throughout it's Christian history. We're we're always doing that anyway. We're doing that anytime yeah. we open a Bible and talk about or to talk about Jesus. There, there there's something being transmitted that's yes. reflecting us in some level. It's really hard to escape. Absolutely. that, Absolutely,
2: that's really well said. I I think that's right. So and and that's okay to admit that, right? To say this Bible as I'm reading it is about about us, about me, and about us. The people that I love and who I've known in my life, who've helped me to find yeah. beauty and the good in the world, and shouldn't we be about trying to find beauty and good in the world? Yeah. Isn't isn't it the good news? You know.
1: Yeah. So to summarize that, it's it's recognizing the. Sometimes I think there's this either or of mm-hmm. does the Bible reflect culture or does the Bible reflect God's truth. And I, I wonder if that's a false dichotomy here as we're thinking about that and, and recognizing that it, those, those things aren't opposites and they're kind of caught up with one another. Right. And this textual transmission and the adulterous woman, it's like, we're not trying to get back to some original thing, but we recognize that it is a living document. And that's the phrase I'm sort of taking away from our conversation is seeing the Bible as a living document and yeah. how that can be a really powerful Thing moving forward,
2: I think that's right. I I was thinking I started with my great grandma Thorson, and that makes me think about her and her favorite hymn was "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." Mm. And I think that, of course, whenever she read the Bible, she always read it through the lens of "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." What the Bible had to say was, "We have a friend in Jesus." Right? That's what it. Mm -hmm. Because that was her experience of her in her life that Jesus was her friend and. That's actually not in the Bible, right? So, she yeah. made that up or she got it from her <laughs> tradition, but it was a deep source of, of life-giving comfort for her. And you can read the Bible that way, and yeah. it's fine. It's fine. There's nothing—it's it's a beautiful thing about her.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Jennifer, we are unfortunately coming toward the end of our time here. It's gone very quickly. So, just to help us, uh, you know, our, our listeners— are you working on any projects at the current moment or, and, or like, where can they find you online? Because that's how the young kids do it these days, right? So, they need to <laughs> find something online. So, social media or website or anything like that.
2: So, I have to confess, I'm 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 not as good as I should be about social media and that kind of thing, but you can easily find me at Duke University where I'm teaching. So, I have a scholars at Duke page or just like, just go Google Jennifer Canoose Duke. You'll find me and you can find everything I've written mostly up there and links to a lot of stuff that you can download for free so that's the easiest way to find me i think if you want to know what i'm up to i just finished a book on the story of the woman taken in adultery we've been talking about that book i wrote it with a wonderful swedish uh, scholar by the name of tommy wasserman we co-wrote it because it's such a complicated story that we needed two people to try to get it right and um, yeah that that was published just this past year and um What I'm working on now, I'm calling it in my mind, um, biblical plunder. And by plunder, I mean the actual objects themselves, like how people have um, really taken Bibles from others and felt justified in doing so. And that's a tradition that goes all the way back to 70 CE when the Romans took the objects of the temple and paraded them in a triumphal march through the city of Rome. So, I don't know how, that's going to be some time before that book really gets out, because I just started it since I just finished another one, but that's what I'm worried about right now, thinking about that.
0: (laughs) Worried about, (laughs) yeah, we all worried about our projects, no question about that. So, yeah, Jared's (laughs) working on right now, he worries day and night about it. That's right, that's exactly right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you so much, uh, Jennifer, for coming on. Just really appreciate your passion for something that a lot of people would just not think about. And so, I think it just brings a lot of awareness that helps us read our Bible better.
2: Well, thanks. I think it's really interesting. So, I hope your readers do, too. No, they will. (laughs) Readers. Actually, listeners, I should say. I'm out of practice as a writer, so I think of readers. We'll
0: get you used to this interwebs thing soon enough, Jennifer. (laughs) Hey, listen, thanks for being on. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: See ya. Thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Be sure to see what Jennifer is up to on her Duke Faculty page, and you can Google that as well as we can. And she's written a number of books. Uh, She alluded to a book on the story of the adulterous woman in John, and that's called To Cast the First Stone, because that's what Jesus says, right? And a couple of other books, Unprotected Texts, uh The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire and that's i haven't read that that sounds very interesting and another one uh, abandoned to lust sexual slander and ancient christianity and i know that book is about how even biblical writers use sexuality as a way of sort of
1: <laughs> slandering
0: people. at least you know that's 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 the idea yeah, yeah. Interesting, stuff.
1: yeah mm-hmm. interesting stuff yeah very interesting well if you want to talk about well not talk about sexual slander but just talk about things about the bible and other things you can check us out. We, well, we assume you're already a patron uh, at patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal Who isn't? Yeah, of course. And, but if if you wanted to have even more conversations, we'd love to check you out on uh, Check You Out. We'd love for you to have conversations with us. Yeah. Man, that was a creepy way of that saying that. That was a
0: creepy... Talk uh, about
1: sexual slander. <laughs> I know, right? I got it in my head here, apparently. Uh, you can check us out on uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter. Pete and I, we often actually interact with one another there. We like to have conversations and uh, interact with one another in in fun and hopefully engaging ways, interesting ways. But check us out there. You can just search us on Facebook, search us on Twitter. J Bias, Pete Ends. You'll find us on all the places, and we'd love to keep the conversation going. So, um, all right. Well, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, folks.